often people assume that whatever you write has to be perfect. I've fallen into this category myself where I'm like, it's just <laughs> it's no, garbage I, and it has to be perfect. This is what I tell people. I'm like, Nobel Prize winners in literature, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, they all have editors and all of their first drafts are not fantastic. Your first drafts are going to improve over time because you get into a rhythm, into a habit. But it makes me feel better to know that the folks that are like the best and most prolific writers mm-hmm. all have to work with editors because their first draft is not it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you have to constantly work toward that. So just if that helps at all, just tell yourself, yeah. you know, writer, such and such, whoever you admire. We already know that when they got their manuscript back with all of those red marks from the editor, they were just as frustrated as I'd probably be. <laughs> And, you know, these are like award winners. So, you know, they go through it, too. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Rollbar. Deploy with confidence more often, spend less time worrying, and more time on improving your code. You can feel safe knowing every error is reported in real time with Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. Welcome to JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Next week on the show, we are joined by a very special mystery guest. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I will say that the interview was short and very awkward. Subscribe if you haven't at changeall.com slash jsparty or in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Oh, and please share JS Party with a friend. The more, the merrier. Okay, let's do this. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another brand new, wonderful episode of JS Party. And today we have some wonderful people on our panel. Suze. Hello, hello. And I'm also on the panel. I'm hosting. <laughs> <laughs> this is Divya Um, And we have a wonderful guest with us who you may have heard and you may be familiar with because she's written a lot and is very into content creation and talks a lot about developers and so on. Stephanie Mario. Hi, hi. It's great to be here. Cool. Stephanie, this is something we do with everyone just to give a high level introduction of who you are, what you do, any plugs that you want to put as well. Sure. So um, I'm Stephanie Morillo. I'm the author of The Developer's Guide to Content Creation, which is a book that teaches developers how to um, generate new ideas, how to systematize their content, and how to publish more confidently. And then I have a day job where I'm a product manager and I do a bunch of stuff and I run around and have a lot of meetings, which is awesome, which is fun. Um, And if you'd like to know more about me and my books, you can go to developersguidetocontent.com. Awesome. I think the stuff that you you write about in your book and so on is really compelling because something that, that's really common in developer communities is that, and you hear this often, this assumption that like, oh, if you write code, like you don't have to be a good writer, it doesn't matter. And you've done a really good job or you've at least advocated for the importance of just like communicating and writing in a way that is, you know, like gets your point across and at least explains the things that you want to say which I think is really cool. Can you speak more to like how exactly you've been 
like talking through those ideas and trying to change perspectives? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because I have a strategic communications background. So for the first four years of my career before I moved into tech, um, I was working in public relations for nonprofits. And that's a very writing intensive job. And then about four years in, um, I was involved in a project where one of our clients was migrating their entire website onto WordPress. And they had me do some really, really simple cleaning up of like HTML tags in the front end. I wasn't doing any of the magical stuff, but I was really interested in that. And I, and I wanted to learn more. So a good friend of mine mentored me and taught me how to program. Once a week, we'd meet for about two or three hours in a Starbucks or at his place. And we'd just mess around with Ruby for a bit. And initially I thought, okay, I'll, I'll become a developer. I really want to become a developer. This is exactly where I want to go. But over the course of time, I realized that it wasn't the coding so much that I, that I liked. It was actually messing things up and then writing about what it was that I, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that I did. And I wasn't really sure how to marry the two. I knew, or I at least suspected that writing and content was something that people liked, but it wasn't something that was valued that much. And I knew that just because you look at the salaries, right, for a software developer Mm -hmm. and maybe a technical writer or someone in a content position, and there's a disparity. Now, they're not the same exact types of roles. There are a lot of reasons and factors that go into that. Mm -hmm. But um, people thought I was a little strange, for one, in a stay on the content track, even though I wanted to continue Mm -hmm. in tech. But I knew that there was a need to teach people. And the best way to teach people is to, you have to know how to communicate, or at least mm-hmm. you have to make the attempt to communicate your thoughts and your ideas with people. And yeah, and I, I saved the course. And you see, it's really easy, I think. Um, it was easy actually for me, even as a content strategist, to assume that, oh yeah, a lot of people write, everybody blogs, everybody has a, a live stream or something. This is stuff people know. And I thought that it was self-evident, frankly. Um, So I wasn't even sure if I should write the book because I was like, this is too basic. This is too foundational. People are going to laugh at me. They're not going to want this. And it wasn't until I told people that I was doing it that people were like, actually, no, this is exactly what we want. This is exactly what we need. And I'm, I'm glad to have been like in the position to have provided that. So it's interesting you say that because I enjoy the writing process as well. I'm, I'm more on the developer side. And it's interesting just seeing the like comments that people make when it comes to writing. And it's sometimes really frustrating because I think the assumption is like, oh, if I wrote something like the assumptions around writing versus coding aside, like in the event that someone does write something, they assume like, oh, I wrote it down. Therefore, it's clear. And oftentimes (laughs) that's not the case. I'm like, I don't understand I've had to read a lot of people's drafts before where it's just a stream of consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And it helps if you know the person because you're like, I know exactly your thought process and the way you think and the way you speak. So I can like distill information I need. But there's so many technical posts out there and like content and tutorials that are like that. That honestly, just because they exist, people assume just because they exist, it's like already a step up. But to me, it's almost worse <laughs> because it adds confusion. And now I have to yeah. like, after reading a like, you know, a really long post, have to go on and read extra things just to gain clarity. Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting point that you just like people write, but are they writing in a way that actually communicates the point? Yeah, that's a... That's a sticky part, right? Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, but the quality 
varies. <laughs> you have things that are really, really high quality, and then you have things that can be reworked. And um, how do I say this? So I've had the opportunity to also edit a lot of technical content. And what I've realized is that a lot of folks haven't had the opportunity um, really to, or haven't given themselves, or they don't know how to find someone else mm-hmm. to give them a look at what they're doing. So there is a part in the book where I talk about the importance of um, self-editing and self-editing is beyond just using Grammarly or just like, you know, whatever native spell check comes with whatever software you're writing. It's really having another set of eyes review what you've created, looking at it from the reader's perspective. So you almost like to your point, you you need someone who is has that degree of separation from your content to help look at it critically and say, well, f- from my point of view as the reader, these are the areas where I'm lost, that are vague, that I'm confused about, that may be too long. The thing about technical writing, and by technical writing specifically, I'm thinking about something like documentation, mm-hmm. which is fascinating, is that a lot of it seems to be really dry, right? Like th- there's not a lot of room to be like clever and fun. And that's mm-hmm. because when you go into official documentation, you're going there with a purpose. You're not going there to sit mm-hmm. down and be entertained. You're in the middle of something and you need to get it done quickly. But there is an art to distilling things down to their essence and not lose anyone along the way, right? Like you have to spell like really, really complicated things out in a way that allows people to follow what you're doing and you can't lose them. And I think a lot of that comes to the fact that um, we don't really have the equivalent of like a writer's workshop (laughs) in tech, you know, like MFA programs, People are used to sitting down and looking at other people's work and reviewing stuff. With us, like, I think we're still at a point where people are just, like, getting over their fear of creating. So they're just like, okay, well, I'm not comfortable writing in a language that I'm not native in. Like, you know, that is where we're at. And I think slowly but steady, we are getting to a point where people realize that writing is more than just putting thoughts to paper, you know, publishing a blog post. That is a step of it. But there is... It's a process. There's the research at the beginning. There's, of course, the writing phase. And then you're constantly refactoring before you get it out. And the idea of working with other people, having things peer reviewed is something that I'd like to see. I'd like to see more of because it's incredibly important, not just because you need somebody else to like spot out typos. That's great. But you really want somebody to say, actually, I was lost here or, you know, this particular step did not like this didn't do the behavior that I think you intended. All of that important stuff, having somebody review for like technical accuracy and other things is something we need more of, I think. Yeah, I think it's really great because like someone of your caliber sort of like is able to speak to both worlds, which I think is really unique. It's very meta. It's super meta. (laughs) Yeah, because... Like a lot of times, and and this is more just like every time I've had to, self-editing aside, that's very difficult as a process. And often mm. when I write, I think I'm a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not. But the thing is, it's interesting because oftentimes whenever, traditionally speaking, and I'm going to just like make a broad strokes thing and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but oftentimes when it comes to technical like blogs, so documentation tends to be very specific, but doc, like blogs, you would write a very technical post and often the person that reviews it doesn't have the technical knowledge that you may mm-hmm. have or your team has, which so, there's this disconnect that happens. And, and I think that's sort of 
I've seen in various companies I've worked the frustration there because, mm-hmm. you know, often it's marketing that comes in and it's like, we're in charge of the blog. We want to make it look nice. We want to edit for grammar and, and so on, readability. But the amount of process that goes through that, as you mentioned, which is like researching the idea as well as writing a draft and then editing that draft multiple times that back and forth. I've seen so many engineers just get burned from that process because they didn't expect it. And also I think there's often because of the miscommunication, this sense that one person is like both parties are like, you don't know the thing that you're supposed to be doing. Like the Mm -hmm. engineers are like, you don't understand the technical stuff and the marketing people are like, you don't know how to write well. And there's this constant clash to the point where I've been in companies where we essentially have to beg engineers <laughs> to write blog posts. But like, please, mm-hmm. it's really great for, like, I'm sure there's SEO and all of that, asi- like things that are involved, but it's just like a really great exercise in just like sharing knowledge within the company as well as externally. And so I don't know if you've, you've ever had to work with that kind of a like disconnect or that process that happens that makes people or especially developers, which is your target audience, like frustrated with, the content creation process? I have because I was the editor-in-chief of two company blogs. Um, I ran Digital Ocean's company blog and um, for uh, I did a short stint at GitHub also running their company blog. And in both cases, um, I was in the marketing department and I was sourcing I was like actively like trawling Slack channels and like, oh, this engineer did this thing. And then I would reach out to them and say, yo, I think you need to write this blog post. And the process worked out well. And I'll explain why. I understood there were a few things that I understood about what it meant working with engineers. For one, they don't have all the time in the world to write their blog post. They're doing this in addition to their main job. So um, sometimes I would even reach out to engineering managers almost to, to advocate the 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 value of having their engineers write for the blog to get them excited and say this is going to be great mm-hmm. for your team this is going to be great for your engineers this will give you know people externally a window into what your particular team is is doing especially if it's a team that's like working on on platform stuff and yeah. things that are more internal facing that are not customer facing it's awesome to give them an opportunity to talk to their work um, on the blog. So that that was one important step for me was to reach out actively to engineering managers just to let them know what our thoughts were. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I spelled out the process like really like I was really like I was very um, transparent about what the what my process looked like. So I explained to them, I said, listen, I know that you're very busy. I know that priorities change within an instant. So what I want to know is when's the earliest that you can get a draft should I reach out to you two weeks from now or three weeks mm-hmm. from now? And if they said two weeks from now, then I'd put a reminder on their calendar. And I'd say, the only reason I'm putting this reminder on your calendar is just to reach out and ask if you have it ready. And if you have it ready, great. If you don't, then I'll come back to you at some later point. So in marketing, like if, if you're, if you're going to do content management, mm-hmm. you're working on more than one blog post at one time. At any point, I was having eight conversations simultaneously just to get a blog post ready for like two months from now, because at any point something could fall off. And then secondly, what I would recommend to the teams was if they weren't comfortable as a writer, my recommendation was to um, record like Mm -hmm. stream of consciousness, record it and get it transcribed. And I would tell them where to get it transcribed because then I told them I can then take that and turn it into something with your feedback and then we'll shape it. So that was one thing that I would tell people, especially for the folks that were like really nervous about writing. Mm -hmm. And then I always recommended that they had a technical reviewer on their team review the posts 
Because, I mean, we had blog posts on things like networking and object storage and a bunch of stuff. And no one person is going to know all of that. Like, it, you can be a fantastic technologist. There is this misconception, I think, from my experience, that to be a really good editor for an engineering blog post, you have to be deeply, deeply technical, whatever that means. But the truth is, if, if, is if you're working in a company that has a bunch of engineering teams with a bunch of different backgrounds, you're not going to know it all. We had people writing on working with Go primarily, people working with Ruby, people working in all kinds of areas of cloud computing. No one person, no matter how fantastic or how deeply technical they were, were, we're going to know it all. So okay. I told them very straight up, I'm not the subject matter expert here. You are. But you need to get somebody on your team to review it from that technical perspective. So mm -hmm. it would usually go through technical review with their team. And it made them comfortable because already, you know, these are people they talk to on a daily basis. They do code reviews with them. Like they're used to certain kinds of communication. So at that point, then I would go in and I would edit and I would do like heavy copy editing. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky because you want to preserve their voice. Like sometimes I, I know some people get spurned by the editing process also. And I don't know if this is what you were referring to, Divya, but yeah. some people get spurned because they send something to whoever and then they get back something that sounds like completely different than who they are. That's tricky because you want to you wanna maintain that that style, those standards, but you also want it to sound like this person wrote it. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a, a me, I had respect for the engineers and I was never dependent on any one person that I was talking to to get things out on the blog. I was constantly hustling and looking for stuff. So it, it helped the engineers feel less pressured because mm -hmm. it wasn't like everything was hinging on this one blog post. And because I understood that they were doing this in addition to their work, um, and I wanted them to like it. I wanted them to like the process because I wanted them to write for us. Again, it worked out really well. People were really, really excited. And the people who weren't really comfortable writers, um, I tried my best to, to to even frame like how I would, like whenever I made some edits, I made it really clear that you can reject an, a suggestion if you don't mm -hmm. like it. I can expand on something. I can let you know why I made a decision because, you know, it, it's a vulnerable activity. You're writing something and then you're having somebody who is ostensibly, you know, really good at grammar looking at your stuff. And you're going to get really nervous if you just see a bunch of like, oh, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. She completely, what is, what is that? So, you know, it's, it's a lot of like, you know, like, oh, like, well, well this will be okay. You know, like patting people on the back. And yeah. Because <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of it is psychological too, you know, emotional. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of code reviews because they always say things like you shouldn't be so attached, emotionally attached to your code and have it be such a part of your identity that you're not able to accept the feedback. Right. And I think when someone feels less confident about what they're doing, such as I'm really confident coding and I've gotten used to getting, you know, constructive feedback in that area, but now I'm writing and I'm a little bit uncomfortable and now I'm getting constructive criticism in that area. And I don't actually know how to deal with that. That's kind of where I'm sure that you do see that emotional sparring at times and trying to figure out the right communication style for every person too is probably a challenge. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, um, I, I, what I would do is I would usually have like a, like a 15 minute sync with someone if I reached out to them and I'd say, Hey, I saw that you wrote about this in this Slack channel. I'd love to talk to you about writing a blog post. And based on that, I I'd get the sense of how comfortable they were with the idea or if that was something they were even interested in. And then I would always adjust how my feedback worked according to um, the person. But I always wanted it to be a great, like I wanted it to be a good experience. And I took that very, very seriously. Like we all have areas where we need to improve. So even people mm -hmm. that are really comfortable writing, maybe they haven't had that experience working with an editor before. Um, and I wanted people then to go back to their teams and say, this is something you should do. It was fun. It was low stress. 
She wasn't, you know, hitting me up like, you know, 5 p.m. for like a deadline, you know, the next day at 9 a.m. And, you know, if I needed to move something back, I could. And, you know, whatever the final product was, was something that they were going to be proud of. So, yeah, that, that was that was my approach. I think that's so cool that you like you advocate for writing content on the blog and and getting basically more publicity around the work that's happening internally. But I like the approach, which is not just you taking on the brunt of the entire advocacy, but bringing people into the process and then having them go through the process and then they become like advocates within their team. So like embedding them across. Mm -hmm. And so to the point where like, did you ever come to a point where people would just come to you with posts instead of like you having to reach out? Yes. I even set up like a submission process so that if anyone wanted to pitch me, they could do that on their own. And we were getting pitches. It was a really good feeling when I left DO and blog posts that I had, that I like source were being published months out. Like that was like, you know, the kind of backlog that I left. And people were like, yeah, you know, our team is working on this thing and we'd love to publish it. And I'll say that I did it like even with the leadership of the marketing team at that time, not really sure like if that was the, the best approach. I really wanted people externally to read these posts and say, wow, this is a company I want to work for. Or they're doing really awesome things, so I actually want to like try something on Dio. But because you know we're putting the engineer voice front and center, and that's important. And you know, with with developers, because you don't want to hear from a marketer. Like we're keeping it one hundred percent here. Like you want to hear from a you want to hear from a peer. Like and you and your peer is not going to sell you on something necessarily. They're going to tell you what it is. They're going to talk with a lot of enthusiasm about the things that they care about and that they like. So that's why, like, you know, during my time there, I really wanted it to be almost engineering centric because I wanted engineers to, to go there and say, wow, like these teams, even the teams that are working on things that aren't external facing or things that, you know, you might hear billing and think like, this is not that much fun. But then the billing team tells you about this really awesome thing that they built. And now you're like, mm-hmm. whoa, OK, I didn't realize that was something that I would be interested in. So, and people got excited because I wasn't I wasn't asking for the best writers. I was asking for people who were excited about something and had a story to tell. Um, and sometimes people were like, wow, I didn't even think this would be something that you, that should be on the blog because I reached out. I'd, I'd see that somebody was doing one thing or another. And mm-hmm. I'd, you know what? I want you to write about that and I'll help you. And you, you don't have to do it alone. Like, you don't have to be a great writer or feel that you're a great writer or anything. Like, I will make sure that this is something that you feel really good about. So, yeah, it worked. It helped. It, it was awesome. It was a great experience. I loved it. I worked with a lot of engineers and a lot of folks who, again, were all over the place in terms of their comfort levels with writing. You know, I was really proud of every blog post that we put out. That's so awesome. is our cloud server of choice grab the nanode plan for just five dollars a month just five bucks that gets you a gig of ram a blazing fast 25 gig ssd and one terabyte of transfer let's be honest you can go a long ways on that five bucks when you do need to scale up their prices are predictable so you can put your calculator down you won't need it we've been running changelog.com on linode for years and we've always impressed by their award-winning support team Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Once again, that's linode.com slash changelog.
Suze, what have you been working on lately? Like non-work related. 3D stuff. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm <laughs> liking your things. It's been, so, it's so cool. Thanks. Yeah, I really wanted to play with displacement maps this week. And then I got my migraine and I haven't been able to look at screens. Like this is the, mm. this is the first time I've looked at my monitor since like Sunday. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it's just been really fun to learn. I learned like 3D modeling when I was a teenager, when I was going through community college. And then I was like, I'm never going to use this, but it's fun. And then I've yeah. just like had this craving to go back to it recently. And it's just been the most, I think because it felt really meditative to me. Like you can kind of mm -hmm. lose yourself in it. Um, once you get on a good roll, like there's like a million little pieces you have to put together, right? So you're just like, well, I'm going to do the coffee cup and then I'll do the table and then I'll do the chair. And it kind yeah. of just like expands from there. So it's just been a very relaxing That's so cool. activity. <laughs> nice. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's been beautiful, the stuff you've been creating. Thanks. Are you using Cinema 4D? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I splurged on it. That was my pandemic splurge was... Cinema 40. Yeah. I've only ever used the one that comes through like the Adobe product. Yeah, so that's Cinema like, 4D Lite. Yeah. That comes with After Effects. So that's what I did. I did the 3D for designers course with that. And then mm -hmm. I did my first like Animal Crossing model of like Leaf's plant cut. And then I was just. Yeah, I've seen that. Thanks. Yeah. I know, it's so cool. I was running into the walls of like where Cinema 4D Lite is really limited. So mm. I was like. Well, I sort of feel quite invested in the software. I really like it a lot more than Blender. So I'll just buy a year subscription and see if I do anything with it. So yeah, it's been pretty yeah. fun. That's so cool. Yeah. What have you been up to? I've been having like the same inkling of doing something random. Yeah. So I've been, <laughs> play <laughs> I've been playing around with like uh, this new game engine called Godot, which is sort of like Unity. That's so uh, cool. Open source. Yeah. What? And it's sort of similar in, in the sense that I did a game development class in college where we used nice. Unity yes. and never touched it because I was like, I'll never use this ever again. And <laughs> lately, I've just been like, I really kind of want to go back and see. I love this nostalgia that we're both having for like, remember that like one thing that was fun that like hasn't been ruined by anything? I should go back to that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I like that it's also like self-contained because yes. it's so unrelated to what I do in my exactly. day job. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly why I've been really into the 3D stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, that's awesome. Are you like making a game? I want to I want to play your game. I'm between like a dungeon crawler and a platformer. <laughs> <laughs> because it's sort of like different mechanics for both and I'm just trying to work with understanding the game engine and understanding the connection between like like modeling things and then programming them. And that's been the part. Like it's a huge learning curve. Yeah, that totally makes sense. With Unity specifically? I've been using Godot, which is sort of Godot, okay. like Unity. How do you spell that? It's like waiting for Godot. Like yeah, yeah, G that's what I figured. G-O-D-O-T. Wait, G-O-D-O-T. I don't know what that phrase even means. Oh, it's like it's a, a book. It's a book called Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. Oh, I feel very out of the loop. I see there's a Wikipedia page about it. I don't blame you. It's a very, it's a very frustrating book to read. <laughs> Well, the first result is the engine, and then the second result is the book, so thanks. I, I'm going to look at oh, that. Oh, wow, later. look at that. Good SEO. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Stephanie, what have you been working on, like, outside of work? And I know you're you're doing a lot of, like, your book stuff, and is there anything else that you're... Well, right now I'm on a break. 
I'm on staycation, which is nice. So that's what I'm working on, on sleeping and watching Netflix, which is awesome. (laughs) But honestly, it's just been, uh, it's been one of those years where I've been furiously writing. It's been a really long time since I've written quite this much. Um, And it's been great uh, because I've been, I've wanted to go back to it. I think I mentioned earlier that I'm a product manager in my day job, so I don't get to do much writing um, outside of, you know, like the business communication stuff. But yeah, it's been mostly just, you know, making myself get into the habit of writing consistently again. Yeah, cool. Because I'd love to hear more about just like how you've been, because writing consistently is actually something that's really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. I've tried to do that. I have done it only within like a month sprint where I wrote like every day uh, mm-hmm. and it was really tiring. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's really cool that you're doing every, is there any like specific topic that you're focusing on or is it like freeform type of writing? It's primarily blogs and then um, okay. short essays for a newsletter. So I, I've, okay. my newsletter goes out twice a month now and I'm blogging one to two times per month. So similarly, it'll be like every two weeks that I'm publishing something new. And, you know, in addition to that, I, I've kept a journal since I was 11. So, um, nice. you know, that's that's where all of my bad writing goes, you know, just because it's, it's nice to have a place where like you can where like your writing can be really bad, you know? Yes. You just do the thing and nobody's going to look at it and nobody's going to judge. But it's just a way of, you know, getting your those creative juices flowing and and getting into the habit more than anything. Oh, for sure. I think. Often people assume that whatever you write has to be perfect. I've fallen into this category myself where I'm like, it's just <laughs> it's no, garbage I, and it has to be perfect. I mean, well, think about it. Like, this is what I tell people. I'm like, Nobel Prize winners in literature, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, they all have editors and all of their first drafts are not fantastic. Yeah, your first drafts are going to improve over time because you've, you know, you you get into a rhythm, into a habit. But it makes me feel better know that the folks that are like the best and most prolific writers mm-hmm. all have to work with editors because their first draft is not it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you have to constantly work toward that. So just if that helps at all, just tell yourself, yeah, you know, writer such and such, whoever you admire, their first draft. We already know that when they got their manuscript back with all of those red marks from the editor, they were just as frustrated as I'd probably be. <laughs> and, you know, these are like award winners. So, you know, they go through it too. I think two of my most pop- popular blog posts that I've written, I have banged out in a very short period of time and mm-hmm. just like thrown it out there because somebody's been asking me to write about it and haven't thought anything of it and then woke up the next day and it was on Hacker News. And and, and so usually I go through that shame of, no, that was not a real, like, quote unquote, <laughs> proper blog post. I did not spend any time on it. I'm so disappointed about this. Um, but it goes to show that sometimes if you hit the right topic or if, if even if it's not perfect, if it's helpful to people, people are still going to have an emotional reaction to it and be very positive. Yeah, I think it's a good balance to have between, because I think there's, there's a sense of like, sort of like publishing your drafts and mm-hmm. I've heard people say that as well, but it's an interesting balance to strike because I think what Stephanie, you were saying is just like the consistency, I think sort of makes you a better writer. Like mm-hmm. the fact that you're just consistently writing and not making it super finessed. So you're sort of almost publishing drafts, but I think that in a sense puts you in a really good place to write better as a whole. So if you were mm-hmm. to like sit down and actually write a post that's for like, you know, a, a bigger publication, let's say, 
um, you're likely to have something that's a bit more polished than if you hadn't gone yeah. through the process mm-hmm. of just writing consistently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Going back to what Sue said about how like the posts that you put together really quick are the ones that I, I still can't predict, frankly, which <laughs> posts are going to do the best. There are posts that I put out there that I'm like, nobody's going to read this. And then it's the same thing. It gets picked up by a newsletter and people say, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And I'm like, really? Like, this is not even... <laughs> I didn't, what, like, why? Totally. You know, people assume, like, yes, because, like, a lot of my blog posts currently tend to have, like, there's, like, certain themes. Like, I have a sense of what my audience is interested in. But, you know, if I'm putting, like, a blog post, like, I did a blog post on, like, internal processes and documentation that I thought three people would read. And that was, like, a blog post that everyone read. And then the post <laughs> that I was, like, yes, everyone's going to run and read this about, like, content strategy for developer relations. And, like, it was, like, you know, five people. I mean, it was more than five people. But, you know, <laughs> Probably, you know, you don't know. It's the ones that you put together in 15 minutes that people, I don't know, they, they react strongly to. So, yeah. And I think, too, it also helps with the with the topics in terms of like how much finesse or polish a particular post needs. Like if, you're, if somebody is writing a post on like a tutorial, like a technical tutorial mm-hmm. um, that requires significant amount of research and that that kind of thing, that that's going to take like they're maybe learning how to use the particular um, technology or whatever as they're writing the post, like that'll take some time. But if it's something more, more like an opinion piece, you know, on a particular topic that they are very confident in, then that's the kind of thing that might take um, less time to, you know, put out there. So I guess what I'm saying is, um, in terms of like how much time it sometimes takes to put things out, um, it really depends on like the amount of uh, familiarity you have with that particular topic prior to, you know, sitting down and getting it out. So if anyone is ever like, man, like I can't, you know, I'm not like Sue's. I can't just like put something together in 30 minutes and then it'll be on Hacker News. Well, you know, I'm sure there is something that you can do, but if you're writing on like how to use blah, 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 you know, with the Mern stack and that is, and you don't know the Mern stack that well, it's going to take you some time to learn that first before you, you put your thing out. So yeah, it always varies. One thing that I hear from a lot of people is, kind of based on that where not only are they afraid that they don't know enough about a topic, they actually have trouble coming up with a topic in the first place. And I always mm. feel very unhelpful in this case because I usually say, oh, I just got mad about something, so I wrote about it. Or like people kept asking me about the same thing, so I wrote about it. And they, they tend to mm-hmm. be my top two where I just get so passionate about something that I want to. And it feels so defeating to say to someone, just sit around and wait till you get mad about something because like, that's not very practical advice. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what you tell people who come to you and say, I don't know what to write about, but like, I think that I do want to actually write because I think I'd enjoy that experience. Yeah, that's a great question. In the developer's guide to content creation, um, I have like a little, it's not even a formula. It's more like a framework. There are four categories of um, ideas So basically four ways of generating ideas for a blog post. So the first thing is write about something that you know, you know, write down a list of just, just do a brain dump of everything that you know, and it does not, and we're not even talking about, you know, whether it's 101 level or 201 or et cetera, just write down the things that, uh, things that you're like, you feel you have a good handle on. That's one thing. Second, look at the things that you have done before, maybe in a different format. So if you've, you know, if you gave a talk at a meetup, if you did something for work that maybe isn't like 100% proprietary, maybe it's something related to process or like how something was was restructured or something, that's something you have. So you can always repurpose that and use that as the basis for mm. new content. So that's, you know, things you know, things you have. 
things other people want to know. So Suze, you mentioned that sometimes people approach you with questions. But if you're not at a point where people approach you with questions, people are asking questions all the time on Twitter. People are asking questions all the time on Stack Overflow. People are asking questions all the time in different platforms. And one of the examples I use in the book was when um, I was a technical writer on Ruby Gems. We were trying to figure out how to write a guide for um, helping Ruby developers troubleshoot TLS issues. And there was no existing documentation about this anywhere. And when I when I did a quick Google search just to see if people were talking about it, the question came up on Stack Overflow. So I was like, okay, there's people are asking about it. It's something that a lot of people want to know about. So I'm going to use that and turn that into a blog post. That, that ends up happening. And then the fourth one, so things you have, things you know. Um, things um, other people want to know, and then things you want to learn. That's the other category. What is it Mm -hmm. that you're interested in learning? Like writing a blog post is great. It at least gives you some kind of structure so that you can learn things. So if you're like, oh, I really want to learn how to use, I don't know, Netlify, and you've been making a point on like creating a, a blog and then, you know, doing that with Netlify, then this gives you the opportunity to learn that because you're learning it. And as you're learning it, you're writing about it. So when you think about it in those four ways, things you already know, and there's a lot of things we know about, and it could be like, you know, like Git commands, your early career developer, and you're trying to figure out, oh, you're like, I don't really know that much about this stuff. Actually, what about all the things that you learned up until now? All of that is good basis for, for things to write about. Um, things you already have, again, things that, you know, is it, is it a, a, an open source project? Did you create something and put it on GitHub? Write about it, write about the process, write about all of the the design decisions that you made, why you made certain things that way. If you gave a talk before, hey, that is stuff that you can repurpose and make it into a cute little blog post. If you did a screencast, same thing. And then see all the questions people are asking in different forums. And then lastly, what is it that you want to learn? And and chances are, you know, technologists, we all want to learn things all the time. So there's never, you know, a shortage of possible things that you can write about when you look at it in those four categories. This is extremely good advice. Thank you. I'll try and remember that. Yeah. I think the learning-driven development is especially helpful, but it's not always what you think about at first. But I know that a lot of people want to learn a topic, so sometimes they'll even pitch like a conference talk and then they'll learn they'll learn how to do it while they're writing they, the talk. And so I never really thought mm-hmm. about applying that to a blog post too. That's really cool. I got that idea when I was learning Ruby. My mentor suggested that I create a blog and use it as a way of documenting what mm-hmm. I was learning. So mm-hmm. every every week I would write kind of like a recap of what it was that we discussed and what I learned and what was frustrating. And it was mostly for myself. There was no external audience. It was mostly for me. But it helped because I wrote it as if there was an external audience and I formatted it accordingly. So, um, you know, if, if you're just learning something, you don't have to have a blog. I think it's important to say this because I think... Um, A lot of people might um, compare themselves to folks Mm -hmm. who are like really prolific content Mm -hmm. creators and such, you know, who make a career of it or at least use it, you know, to move ahead. And they're like, Mm -hmm. wow, well, you know, this person has like this amazing blog and blah, blah, blah. Like you don't have to have a particular audience for your blog. Your blog can be 100 percent for you. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want people to read it, that's great. And of course, you're going to you're going to approach it differently. But it's totally okay to create something that only you're looking at and is for your eyes only, at least in the beginning, while you're getting used to it. And then when you get to a point where you're like, I want more people to see this and read this, then you can, you know, widen your scope and, and change the kind of content that you write about. But it was great because, because you know, I was already online anyway. And, you know, I was I was already l- using Ruby to learn how to, like, you know, create like a like a Jekyll mm-hmm. blog and stuff. It was nice. It made sense. It kind of connected everything together. Yeah. It's also cool because it serves as like a really good personal documentation if you forget. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've used many of my own blog posts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. You just you have a record of it. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, there have been times like I've written about something and like published it either to like a company blog or something, and then Googled and found my own <laughs> and you found your blog. <laughs> Every time I'm like, oh, yeah. Every time I set up a new Windows laptop, I like Google my own blog post about how to make the terminal pretty. This was before WSL and it was before the new Windows terminal. And so it was so hard to get your stuff to look really pretty in the Windows terminal. Um, And so I always had to Google that one blog post that, well, it just goes straight to my blog and, and pull out the XML files and everything that I linked out to. <laughs> See, it's like you, you just have to give like yourself a pat on the shoulder for that foresight. <laughs> totally. Thank you, you know, for helping me out in the future. You're the audience. Yeah, yeah. You're writing for yourself. And like, I, I sort of treat it that way whenever I write things as well. Um, just to be like, this is for me. <laughs> or for yeah. future future me who's likely gonna not know the thing that now me knows. Exactly, 100%. What up, party people? It's your boy, Jared. I would like to tell you about something new that we're beta testing around JS Party. It's a membership program, which we think could be really valuable for the whole community. It's called Changelog++, and it's the best way to directly support JS Party and all the podcasts, videos, and other stuff we create here at Changelog. We have big plans and ambitions for this, but we are experimenting for now to make sure there's interest. When you sign up today, you make the ads disappear. You get JS Party and all the shows you love, just no ads. That means this part you're listening to right now, it'll be gone. We also have some extended episodes planned, bonus content, merch store discounts, and a lot of ideas. But since it's such early days, we are offering memberships at a 40% discount for early adopters. That deal's going on for the month of August. So head to changelog.com slash plus plus to join today, lock in that discount, get closer to the metal, and make the ad disappear. Once again, that's changelog.com slash plus plus. We'd love to have you supporting us as a member. We're almost at the hour and I wanted to just jump into the next section where we talk a little bit about like self-publishing and the process that you went through there because you talked about this already, but you have a book that you published. Like it's interesting to hear just the process of what that was like. And so can you speak to that and you know what what you went through there and yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I got the idea for the book, I would say it was last fall. And I thought at that point, I was like, I think there's an audience for this book. So I actually pitched it to a publisher, to a traditional publisher. Um, It was a publisher that I, really small, small press, um, but I really wanted to work with them for a while. Mm -hmm. So I I filled out their like, you know, book proposal template and I sent it over and they reached out and they were like, we really love the idea for this book, but we don't know how to market it. Like they were trying to figure out how Mm -hmm. to actually... Um, make it work with um, the existing catalog mm-hmm. and, you know, how to pitch that in a certain way. And they encouraged me to reach out to other publications or to just self-publish it. And at that time, um, I started reading a book by an entrepreneur and developer named Amy Hoy. She wrote a book called Just F and Ship. And uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's, you know, it's very, <laughs> very meta because she wrote that book in 24 hours and put it out. And she talks about how wow. to... 
and and she uses the meta the, the metaphor of um preparing a Thanksgiving dinner and how mm. you have to get things done in advance. Like, okay, you know you're gonna cook a, a dinner at Thanksgiving. What are all of the different steps that go into preparing for that dinner? So mm-hmm. um I actually started writing the book, you know, at right around that time as I was reading that. And then I decided that I would announce the book, even though I'd only written 4,000 words. I'm going to tell people that I'm writing this book just to see if people are interested. Public accountability. It was a Friday and I wrote a tweet. Yes. I wrote a tweet and I was just super, super, super confident about it. Announcement. I'm writing the developer's guide to guide to content creation. It's going to be great. And then it was just like, 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 like. And I was like, okay, I guess I have to make this a thing. So the next day I did the landing page and I put the pre-order, like nothing, 4,000 words. 4,000 words. We're talking very, very little here. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, great. I got to choose a date. I chose a date six weeks out. And I did that because I wanted a deadline that I felt I could hit, but also put the pressure mm-hmm. on so that I actually got the thing done. Mm-hmm. So I um, yeah. chose an arbitrary date in late January. This was around Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then the pre-order started coming in. So I was like, okay, well, I got I to gotta finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got to do the book. So I wrote the book in 11 days. I wrote the entire first draft wow. in 11 days. I sent it to a reader. They did like a full review over Christmas. I came back, incorporated their edits. I got some editors on Fiverr. I got two editors because I wanted to make sure. I, I like having more than one editor because sometimes mm-hmm. one person will spot things that the other person may not. Mm. Um, and so it's nice yeah. to have like multiple perspectives there. That's a pro tip. Yeah, yes. Get more than one editor. And Fiverr too. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a perception with Fiverr that, you know, you're going to go with the cheapest editor. And I didn't. I wanted to go with the editor that was going to make the best book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had a budget for it. Mm -hmm. What I like about Fiverr is that a lot of the the editors there, they have quick turnaround times. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, and because I was going with such a time crunch, I was like, I want something that I know that I can get back within a week or a few days or I'll pay extra just to get it back, you know, even sooner. So like I kind of created the work back schedule once I knew when I was publishing it. So I, it was like mm-hmm. December 15th that I announced it. I was publishing it January 28th. So then I was like, if, if January 20th is when I'm publishing it, I have to know when I have to do the design. I have to do. And I did all of that, by mm-hmm. the way. I did the I mean, the the, the cover, it was like a, a, the original cover was like a Canva template that like I found. And, and, you know, I did a landing page in Wix, the pre-order and everything in Gumroad. And um, the thing that I paid for was the um, the editing and then also for my reviewer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and then the book design and all of that, I did it myself. But it was basically early in the morning before work. So usually 7, 7.30 <laughs> to like 9 a.m. <laughs> then it'd be full work day. And then from like 6 to 10 p.m., I was working on it. And then I was working on it on weekends also. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work. And there are worksheets also. So, you know, it wasn't just it was the book. It was the the worksheets. And then, of course, you know, like the formatting and the the layout, mm-hmm. the design, all of that stuff. And then the promotion. That was all me. Yeah. Would you do it again? I did it again. I published the second book in May. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So I guess that answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did the, the developer's guide to book publishing. And that was incredibly meta as well. Yeah, yeah it, very, very meta. I was because people yeah, were asking yeah. me about the self-publishing process, but um, I also yes. wanted to to give insight into what the traditional tech publishing process is because 
Mm-hmm. Um, unless you know somebody mm-hmm. who's had their book published by an O'Reilly or a Wiley or an A-Press, unless you know them, yes, a lot yeah. of that particular process is completely uh, opaque for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to present it so that people who want to write have the opportunity to understand both tracks, how they differ, because neither one is better than the other. It's just what you want to do is different. And yeah. then, you know, give people, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. Like if you want to yeah. do the traditional publishing, you read these chapters. If you want to do self-publishing, mm. you do these chapters. But yeah. I did that one, like, I started that one about a month after I dropped the first (laughs) (laughs) I would not recommend. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I mean, I was just like, this is intense. And then, you know, coronavirus happened, COVID happened, and that kind of messed up timelines. But I mean, I got it out, like, less than four months after the first one. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the difference between, like, because you've done both now, you've, like, written two books, and you've also, like, written multiple, like, technical documentation and blogs. What is the process like for both? Like, I'm sure, obviously, one is more intense, but can you speak more to, like, the ideation and then moving into, like, the actual writing process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Writing blogs is, for me, a much more lightweight process. Um, mm-hmm. I might take some time mulling over an idea and, you know, maybe jot down a few things in, like, my Apple Notes app, but then like I'll sit down and I'll hammer out a blog post in half an hour, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes less. And it could be like, you know, anywhere between a thousand to 1500 words. So I can write very quickly, but because the blog post is pretty much just writing some research, there will be some research involved and then some light editing. Like I can write a blog post mm-hmm. and, and have it published within a day versus a book. It's really easy to have scope creep with a book. I mean, the same thing is true of a blog post also, depending on the kind of topic mm-hmm. at hand. So like I, I I, always keep my audience in mind. I always try to mm-hmm. um, define what the goal of it is so that I don't go off on a bunch of tangents. But with a book, mm-hmm. you're doing that at scale <laughs> because it's easy to just yeah. fit everything in. Or what if this? What if yeah. that? Right. You, it's like overpacking for a trip, you know, like <laughs> how do we get this down to a weekender bag? You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and that's exactly what the that's, I think, what makes the process harder, because like you have to write like a full out outline. And then as you yeah. write, you realize that you have to continuously refine that outline. Mm-hmm. And then you may find that, ooh, maybe I want to add this. But actually, mm-hmm. does it detract or does it add? So you have to be, I feel, mm-hmm. with even longer blog posts, but certainly with books, yeah. you have to be very ruthless a- in cutting down. You have to kill a lot of your darlings oh. in order to just give people, like, this is it and, and this is yeah. what you're getting um, so that you don't overwhelm people or just, like, mm-hmm. you know, lose people. But with some blog posts, you can you can see that too, like with tutorials, right? Like a tutorial blog mm-hmm. post, how to do blah, 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 blah. It's really easy to, you know, give everybody everything with the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. But you have to, you know, there, there's, it, but you almost have to think about it as like, the way I like to think about those kinds of blog posts is like, you know, the, the recipes you get with like a blue apron or a sun basket subscription, yeah. <laughs> they fit in a card, right? And yeah. they're not superfluous and they're not using all these great yeah. words. They, every word there is there for a reason. And they're not going to, they're not going to give you the backstory and all of that fun stuff. They are, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. <laughs> but the great thing is that as a result, yeah. you, you pretty much don't mess up the recipe. You know what I mean? You're going right. to, you're going to get, yeah. it doesn't matter the level of, of, of cook you are. You're pretty much going to get like the desired outcome. So, you know, that's what I would say. <laughs> I like that. Metaphor. Like, yeah, <laughs> it makes me wonder what would, but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. But what would a tech tutorial 
blog post look like if it was written the same as like recipe blogs it's like I remember when I was a child <laughs> punching away at my Tandy computer and I was thinking I would just love to have the ability you know what I'm saying I was just wondering what that would look like <laughs> I mean it's funny because we don't like sometimes you'll see like blog posts that have like that intro where you know and I do yeah. that too like mm-hmm. you have like the, the the little bit of context and background mm-hmm. but even within the recipe like you might find that there's like bloat, like there's certain phrases mm-hmm. that, or, or even like the steps are kind of messed up. Like, like, like step three was actually supposed to be step two mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like the reordering, there's that. So even without like the whole, like, you know, backstory about this and, you know, Cabo and my grandmother and all of that, <laughs> even without that in a technical blog post, we still like, we're still probably not as like, um, straightforward as we need to be. And it's not that you mm. have to do it without any kind of color or that you have to sound super dry and boring, but we may, it's really easy, frankly, to like miss a step or miss a word or something that, and then people get stuck. So I think going back, and, and I know this was like very, very long winded, so I may have lost my train of thought for a bit, but the I think in both, with both like certain kinds of technical blog posts, like a tutorial where you're teaching somebody how to do something from start to finish and a book, you have to outline, you have to be very ruthless in cutting things out, and you have to make sure that every step that is there and every word that is there actually means something. And don't just go mm-hmm. by your own judgment, like have somebody else review it mm-hmm. so that they can validate or or not your hypothesis that this particular thing actually is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's so important that you mentioned that, and, and it's so pertinent as well, because People think the writing process is creative and so it just flows. But I actually think what you're speaking to is that it's much more uh, rigid in terms of, well, not rigid, but there's some structure to it, which is like you outline what you want to say and then you Mm -hmm. write the thing rather than like let your ideas flow, which that's a different kind of writing. But um, I like that structure as a way of making sure that you actually can write the thing within a reasonable amount of time. And also mm-hmm. you don't get burned by the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. So I think we're at time. Uh, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Um, and before we close, I wanted to... Suze, did you have something to say? No. Did I make okay. a face? <laughs> I always make faces and I don't mean to. I'm sorry. <laughs> like I do that all the time. <laughs> it's fine. It's totally fine. It's just my face. <laughs> Before we close, I just wanted to also just give you an opportunity to, to like make a plug and where can people find you and, and that kind of information. Sure. So um, on Twitter, I am at Radio Morillo. That's R-A-D-I-O-M-O-R-I-L-L-O. Um, you can find me at stephaniemorillo.co. Um, I blog uh, once to, one to two times a month. Um, there's links to my newsletter if you're interested. Um, and of course, if you're interested in purchasing the developer's guide to content creation, you can also find it there. I frequently tweet with tips about writing and content in general. So if you're interested in seeing what kinds of gems I drop, there's a bunch of stuff on Twitter. Um, and then of course I have opportunities for developers who want to work with me one-on-one. So if you would like a one-on-one session, you can find more information about that on my website also. Perfect. Yay! I definitely second that you have nuggets of wisdom on your Twitter. <laughs> I often you. see that. <laughs> I'm always Thanks. clicking through to your threads every time. Oh, I yeah. appreciate you. <laughs> cool. Awesome. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, we'll gladly accept a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That would be rad. 
Are you following JS Party on Twitter? If not, you're missing out on live show notifications, clips and highlights from past episodes, links and repos from around the JavaScript community and more. Join in on the conversation. We are at JS Party FM. This episode was hosted by Divya with help from Suze. It was produced by me, Jared Santo, and the music, as always, was created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. JS Party is brought to you by amazing people at companies who get it. Special thanks to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. Mystery guest next week. Thank you.